0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, right off the bat, let's start with a clinical pearl. If you're planning on sitting for your OBGYN oral boards, try to stay away from trade names or branded names and use generic instead, because that's the preferred. And the same applies for any kind of lab test. If you state that you'd order a branded lab test, you better be darn sure you know what that generic name is or what that lab test is actually checking for. For example, if a discussion comes up of ruptured membranes and you go to amnesure as your answer, well, you better be darn sure you know what amnesure is checking for because you know that's going to be the very next question. So I thought in this session we would cover the different types of tests to look for ruptured membranes because there's a lot of confusion about them and they're technically not the same. So in this podcast, we're going to cover staying away from the pitfalls of using these tests incorrectly. Ready? Let's start our detailed review of tests used for rupture of membrane detection. Howdy. Howdy. We are third year medical students students at Texas A&M, and this is Clinical pearls. Pearls. Remember that PROM stands for pre labor rupture of membranes. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's a dumb way to start. I mean, duh, we know that. But wait a minute, it wasn't always that way. So when I was a resident, and up until recently, PROM stood for premature rupture of membranes because it signified the rupture of membranes, or amniorexis, that happened premature in relation to the onset of labor. However, you can see how using the word premature to describe this breaking of bag timeline to the onset of labor can be confusing. So ACOG changed the term from premature rupture of membranes to pre-labor rupture of membranes. That was part of the revitalized program that changed a couple of things in the college a couple of years back. So pre-labor rupture of membranes refers to membrane rupture prior to the onset of labor and its management remains one of the most controversial issues in OBGYN. They go, well, what's so controversial about it? Well, it's only controversial, especially during the periviable period, but at term, it's less controversial. But nonetheless, there are different ways to handle term PROM in the globe. For example, in the UK, patients are allowed a period of observation of 12 to 24 hours before labor is actually augmented. However, in the US and in Canada, it's much more favored to begin augmentation of labor shortly after they present to their healthcare institution rather than giving them just a time to wait to see what happens because we don't want to risk infection. Preterm. Pre-labor rupture of membranes, obviously, is ruptured membranes before 37 weeks. And periviable is, as we've already discussed, usually around 22 to 23 weeks. Look, here's why this matters, regardless of EGA, because we've got to get this right. False positive ruptured membranes diagnoses, in other words, calling somebody ruptured when they're really not, could lead to unnecessary interventions. And the reverse is also true. If somebody really is ruptured and we miss it and they get a false negative diagnosis, then that could lead to altered perinatal outcomes as well. So we've got to get this right. So in this podcast, we're going to go over some Real important and practical clinical pearls, not just about examination, but obviously about the key focus of this session, which is what these tests that we order so commonly in labor and delivery are actually checking for, and we're going to discuss their strengths and their weaknesses. In order for us to get this diagnosis correct, we have to start, like with every medical condition, with the history. History is key. For the presentation, patients will report leakage of fluid from the vagina or wetness of the perineum or of their uh, panties, their underwear. The main differential is usually that of urine leakage associated with a full bladder or other considerations may include just copious vaginal discharge or maybe an STI or something that's not sexually transmitted but still an abnormal condition of the vagina like bacterial vaginosis. So there's some questions that we can guide the patient to help give us the right diagnoses. In other words, ask if it's intermittent or a continuous leakage. Urine leakage, usually associated with coughing or an overextended bladder like when she's very full and hasn't been able to void, can point more towards urine leakage and away from ruptured membranes. On the other hand, continuous flow without movement or spontaneous flow of of liquid through the vagina that doesn't stop obviously sounds more like ruptured membranes. Also, odor can be important, so ask about that. Remember that urine or infected amniotic fluid will have a very distinct odor, but normal amniotic fluid in general will not. Now, also important to ask is the timing of the event. For example, if it happened recently with a trauma or a fall or a motor vehicle accident, that points more towards the possibility of ruptured membranes. Once the history is established, then of course we move on to the physical examination. Now before we get into the physical exam and we get into the specific test for ruptured membranes, I thought it'd be interesting just to give everybody a reminder of what the traditional gold standard called the without doubt or the Synquinon test for ruptured membranes actually was. No, it's not amnesure. And it's not just regular speculum exam. So if you're ever asked, I wonder what the bench, the the true gold standard is for ruptured membranes. Well, it's something that's not done clinically at all. But it was done historically. And it's still done rarely though in some research settings under some trial. And the answer is the invasive installation dye test. So I hope you've heard of that because that was a thing. This was considered the definitive approach for making a ROM diagnosis when examination and history were just unclear. And once again, this was considered by the college diagnostic, not simply a screening test like the biomarker test that we're going to discuss here in just a minute. To do this invasive installation test, indigo carmine was injected into the amniotic sac usually under ultrasound guidance. This was about 1 mL of indigo carmine in about 9 mLs of sterile saline injected transabdominally under ultrasound guidance into the amniotic sac. Then, a tampon will be placed inside the vagina for about 20 minutes to look for a leak. In other words, if the tampon turned blue, that was considered de facto evidence of a ruptured membrane. Now, if indigo carmine was not available, others had suggested and published the use of sodium fluorescein. This is the same dye that's sometimes used at laparoscopy to look for the ureters or a cystoscopy to look for urethral patency as the urine flows into the bladder cavity. Now, in order to do this, it was 1 to 4 mLs of 5% sodium fluorescein. After this was injected, a speculum would be placed back into the vagina and then using a specific UV light, then you could look for sodium fluorescein as it leaked out of the cervix so this is a little bit more complicated because it wasn't just putting dye into the uterus and then putting a tampon in the vagina you actually had to use a special long wave uv light inside the vagina to see if the cervix well basically turned this yellow green fluorescent color All to say, these just aren't done because they're clumsy, they risk infection, and it's good to know what they are if you're ever asked, but these just aren't used in labor and delivery or in a clinical setting. Once again, these are more research tools. Now, before we leave this issue of the dye installation test, there is a clinical pearl. If you're ever asked which dyes were contraindicated because of fear of fetal harm, well, that list is pretty short. It is not advised to use endocyanine green Evans Blue or Methylene Blue to defeatal fetal harm concerns. So remember, indigo carmine or sodium fluorescein were the two approved dyes for the installation test for ruptured membranes, which are done more research-based, but not really at the bedside. And we're moving on. We've already talked about history and the, without doubt, the Synquinon test for ruptured membranes, which is just not done at the bedside, which now takes us to physical examination. Remember that sterile speculum examination is the standard clinical tool used for diagnosing ruptured membranes. But you've got to know how to do that test correctly. For example, did you know that best practice is to not use lubrication on the speculum? Now wait a minute, don't send me any messages, I'm not mean, I'm not trying to hurt the patient. Trust me, during pregnancy there's plenty of lubrication and moisture in the vagina. It doesn't need anything else to come from a tube. And the reason is, is that especially if it's water-based lube, that lubricant in the body heat, once it enters the vagina, can actually mirror amniotic fluid. And so it makes the exam pretty difficult. It's actually in their package insert. That use of lubrication on the speculum or in the vagina can actually lead to a false negative PAMG1 test. It can interfere with the test result. So best practice, keep the lubrication away from the speculum for sterile speculation. All right, well, you've got the speculum in the vagina, now what? Well, the two most sensitive and specific diagnostic tests for ruptured membranes on the sterile spec exam is seeing amniotic fluid pooling in the posterior vaginal wall or seeing amniotic fluid through the cervix with a valsalva or a cough test. So those are the two most sensitive, cough test or valsalva, and seeing fluid leak through the os and or pooling of amniotic fluid in the posterior vaginal vault. Now, I know you're thinking, well, what about ferning and pH? Well, those are terrible, but we're going to get into that in a little bit later down in the podcast because that's actually been assessed as well. There's just way too variable results, and they have a lot of intra-observer variability. Well, so short of it is, ferning and pH testing of the vagina, way too variable and considered not sensitive or specific. I do want to touch base on that towards the end of the podcast because ACOG and the UK don't agree on this issue. But we'll get to that in a little bit. That's just a little teaser. Now, let's say you do your sterile spec exam with no lubrication and you still don't know. Well, that's where these biochemical tests come into play. Now, I know some that do a biochemical test Without fail, even if they see fluid coming into the vagina, just to give them that extra bit of confirmation, and that's fine. But remember that these tests are really considered ancillary when the history and the physical exam are equivocal. But I have no beef with just getting it on everybody. I think that's fine. It's just one more piece of evidence. But remember, physical examination wins. These tests are ancillary because ACOG and the FDA are very clear on this. All of these biomarker tests are screening tests for ruptured, and none are diagnostic. This has gotten some patients and providers into trouble. In other words, a patient presents to labor and delivery at 3 in the morning. Come on, guys, you've been there. I've been there too. And you get that call, and you get the report. Hey, she thinks she's ruptured. She's like 35 weeks. I don't see anything, and I swabbed her, and the amnesia, not calling any beef with amnature, but just using that as an example, came back negative, so we're going to send her home. And the provider says, yeah, okay. That's not how that's supposed to go. ACOG and the FDA say that no management is to be done based on those tests alone. In other words, they're not to be interpreted in isolation. In August of 2018, the FDA sent out a Dear Doctor letter warning against the use of ancillary biomarker tests for ruptured membranes. As it was stated in the letter, the following limitations are typically stated in rupture of membrane device labeling. That FDA letter reminds all providers that a negative result does not assure the absence of membrane rupture. And that's because the swab may not have been left in the vagina for the specified amount of time, or the lab could have read that in not the appropriate amount of time, or misread the result altogether. It also reminds us that negative results can occur if the sac has resealed, or if it's tested on the patient too far away from the initial time of rupture. Yep. That matters. For example, amnesia is best done from the suspected time of rupture of 12 hours. And as the hours pass from that, it can raise the likelihood of a false negative test. So if a patient presents with a possible two day history of ruptured membranes, that Hampshire may not be that accurate because it's based on a test based on its FDA approval of about 12 hours from suspected rupture to the collection of the test result. That FDA letter also reminds providers that things like blood, meconium, antifungal creams or suppositories, baby powder, baby oil, or here it is, lubricant on the vaginal exam are all things that can interfere with a device test like Amnisure or PAMG1. The letter does specifically state as a reminder that, quote, ROM tests or rupture of membranes tests should not be used on their own to independently assess whether a rupture of membranes has occurred or not. It also reminds us that using that inappropriately could put the patient and obviously the baby at risk. So according to the CDC, ACOG, and SMFM, these tests are screening tests. And it is always important to place the test result in the context of the clinical scenario, including patient history and physical exam findings. And as a clinical pearl, and even though we've already said it, it's got to be said again— The pregnancy itself should never be managed based on the biochemical testing alone or in isolation. Plus, did you know that lubrication can actually affect the function of some of these biomarker tests? For example, later on in the podcast, we're going to discuss amnesure. Remember, that checks for PAMG1 or placental alpha-microglobulin 1. All right, podcast family, I told you that we were going to review the biomarker test ruptured membranes. The trade names for those three tests are Amnisure, Actim, R-O-M, and ROM Plus or R-O-M Plus. Those are the three different types or branded names that are out there. But we ran out of time with this session, because this is part one. So you got to come back to part two, where we're going to discuss the specifics on Amnesure, Actim ROM, and ROM+. Plus. What are they actually checking for? And are they all really the same? So come back for part two where we're going to dive into detail regarding the three types of ruptured membranes biomarker testing. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad that you're part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.